Genesis chapter 13, reading from verses 1 to 18. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, and his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the, land whole, is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived amongst the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Ebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we've just sung this, but we want to pray it. We want to stand as children of your promise. We want to fix our eyes on you, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We want to walk by faith and not by sight. So please help us as we look at the Bible to be those kind of people. In Jesus' name, amen. Often, friendships start with a handshake. It's not just an introduction. It's a way of expressing you want the best for someone. You're reaching out towards them and sort of in friendship to greet them, aren't you? And if you like, Genesis chapter 12 is one enormous cosmic handshake where God reaches out to Abraham and promises him things that only God can promise. I will bless you. 
I will make you a blessing. I will bless all the nations through you is the sort of thing that God promises right at the beginning of chapter 12. And Abraham says, all right then. And reaches out his hand back to God. Only this isn't a handshake of equals. It's much more like a child holding on to an adult's hand. All the strength and the stability comes from the adult. And uh, on a good day, the little one will be walking along and holding on. But there'll be plenty of times where he or she gets tired or trips up or gets distracted. And, uh, and whenever that happens, it's going to be mum or dad or grandma or grandpa who grabs hold and says, don't worry, I've got you. I won't let you fall. Keep going. And that's how it is with friendship with God, with him reaching to us and us responding. It doesn't depend on our ability to hold on to him. Friendship with God is built on the fact that when God makes a promise, he keeps a promise. And that's how it was for Abraham. And that's how it will be for you and me. Do you remember Jesus' words? I give my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. See what that means? If we are people who listen to Jesus, who put our faith in him, then we are eternally secure. He's got us and nothing can break his grip. That is friendship with God. And the second half of Genesis 12, those who missed last week, um, was a good example of that because Abraham messed up everything, basically, in the second half of Genesis 12. He was not remotely good at holding on to God's hands, but God blessed him anyway. This week, chapter 13, sees Abraham doing better in trusting God and his promises. And it shows us a bit more of what the life of faith looks like on a normal day and also in a crisis. The first thing to see uh, is Abraham trusting God's promises. You'll see the structure on the uh, sheets. It's there in verses 1 to 4. He comes back from Egypt to the south of Israel, the Negev, and then he goes not so much on a journey as a pilgrimage, back to this place between Bethel and Ai, where, verse 4, he had first built an altar. There Abraham called on the name of the Lord. So this is a renewal of Abraham's faith in God, just like I'd recommend recommend each of us having a, a daily opportunity just to read a bit of the Bible and to pray to God a daily renewal of the friendship with him, living it out, putting our hand in God's hand as we go into each day or as we reflect on each day and prepare for the next one, whenever it is that's good for you to do that. I'd recommend it. Abraham did it by going back to this place, to this altar he'd built. But then just as he gets his focus back, the crisis happens and his faith is tested by a quarrel between his herdsmen and Lot's. Uh, In chapter 12, the uh, crisis was a famine. Here it's the opposite. The crisis is caused by prosperity. Abraham's got so many animals and flocks and herds uh, that, uh, and then his nephew Lot has two. There are so many of them that the land can't support both huge uh, groups all grazing in the same place. If you sneak a peek over the page to chapter 14, verse 14, you'll see the sort of numbers involved. Abraham's household included 318 men trained to fight. Wait more, more on that next week. But plus, of course, their wives, their children, uh, the older people who couldn't fight. And basically, we've, we've talked about Abraham's household is a small tribe now. And Lot's household wouldn't have been as big, but clearly there's enough. So verse 6, the land could not support them 
while they stay together. We said last week that a lot of the things that happen in Genesis would be right at home in a modern-day soap opera. And I think we can imagine uh, EastEnders, got two large families, they're competing over, I don't know, what, maybe to run the meat counter or something at the market. Um, and um, uh, they, they're both wanting the prime stall and they're both competing for the same customers and there's aggro, and there's arguments, and there's tension, and the camera's zooming to one, and then across to the other, and the tension is rising and rising and rising, until we reach a flashpoint, and a fight breaks out, and everyone piles in the blood all over the place. Yuck. What those soap operas need, and don't usually have, is someone like Abram. Because look down to verse 8. He goes to his nephew and speaks to him, And Abraham is a peacemaker. Jesus said, didn't he, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. They're like God, who is a peacemaker with us. And so Abraham says to Lot, uh, verse 9, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You choose, we'll separate, it'll all be fine. Let's let's stay at peace with each other, we're relatives. Now I was trying to work out... um, was Abraham being generous as he said that? Lot, you decide, knowing that Lot would almost certainly choose the best land. Or was, Lot, was Abraham being a little bit pathetic? You know, oh, I don't know. You decide. And then I realize there's another option. Remember, Abraham has just renewed his faith in God. This is a point in his life where he's actually, he's putting his faith into practice. He's holding on to God. And what did God promise at the start of chapter 12? I recapped it a minute ago. God said to Abraham, I will bless you. And there were no conditions on that promise. And at this point in the narrative, Abraham holds on to that. It doesn't matter which way we go, Lot. You go left, I'll go right. It doesn't really matter. God's going to bless me. And I'm trusting that. I think that's what's going on for Abraham here. And do you see how that gives him just a real freedom in his life? He doesn't have to cling on. He doesn't have to try and control all the details of his life. You see, it, it makes all the difference in the world that know, to know that God is in charge and to live out a, a life where you have security because of what God has promised. It's a wonderfully freeing way to live life. It doesn't mean that you can't make wrong choices, and Abraham did in the last chapter, and, well, we're going to come to a lot now here in chapter 13. He... Well, does he make the wrong choice? This is the question uh, as we um, read through uh, uh, what Lot does. um, There's no direct comment made about whether Lot's choice is a good one or a bad one. I mean, on the face of it, Abraham had generously given him first dibs, which bit of land he has, and he looks around and goes, well, that bit looks awesome. It's lush, it's fertile. It's uh, next to the river in the Jordan Valley, and it's still like that today if you visit Israel. On the face of it, the choice was a no-brainer. Apart from that little piece of information the writer gives in verse 13. Did you notice it? The people of Sodom, next to where Lot pitched his tent, were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. That's just a clue of what we're seeing here. Which is Lot risking everything. He chose by what looked good and ignored what impacts it would have on his spiritual life and his moral life, the life of his family and his household. As he settled down next to this 
renowned wicked city. And what he was risking was himself or his family or both being drawn into the wickedness of Solomon and coming under God's judgment for that. Now, just to explore that a bit, the reason that the um, Jordan Valley was and is so lush and fertile is the river. Like verse 10 says, it was well watered, which means that come rain, come shine, people, as they, they worked with the river, they had to irrigate the land, they dug the trenches, they, they, um, when the river flooded, then, then, then the land was thoroughly soaked, they could irrigate everything, and it meant that crops could, would always grow. And that's why it was a spiritually challenging place to live. You think, what's the link there? We see, what's happened throughout history is that when people have built cities and they feel secure, when they've worked hard and with the resources God's provided, but they've had to do a lot of work and then they kind of congratulate each other after all that work, and when it's something regular and, and it's always there like a river is, then people get into the mindset of, well, it doesn't really matter how we treat to God, whether we worship God or ignore God. We're going to be blessed, whatever. And a mindset develops, not least in cities, where when it comes to the physical side of life, because we're so prosperous, we think we don't need God. And it ends up being risky spiritually. And that's got to be true of some parts of London today, hasn't it? Some places to work in London today. People would feel so secure in their own abilities and their own prosperity that they think they don't need God, they don't need anybody else, actually. And kind of quite isolating. On the other hand, where Abraham settled was hill country. If you were going to have water in the hill country, where was it going to come from? It's going to be the grace of God. It's going to be rain if you're going to have water, if things are going to grow in the hill country, it seemed a lot riskier to live there. But actually, spiritually, the the physical reality they were living with was a constant reminder of their need for God. And so, it actually made it spiritually a much more secure place to be. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, going back to Lot. The New Testament describes Lot as a righteous man. That's the verdict on him, on his life. It says he was tormented in his soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard in Sodom. So, why did God, sorry, why did Lot go and live next to Sodom if he was tormented in his soul by everything he saw going on there? Why not live somewhere else? Israel is a fairly big country. There's enough for two uh, lots of uh, flocks and herds if they separate and, and go to different bits. Why go there? Well, obviously, he went there because of the appeal of living in the best postcode in the land. The appeal of prosperity. It drew him. And my hunch is that Lot looked at it and thought, you know, okay, they're a, they're a pretty rum bunch in Sodom, but I'm strong. I'm strong spiritually. I'm not going to go wrong. I'm not going to copy them. I'll be fine. And so he took this risk. And I guess the New Testament verdict is, yeah, he was just about strong enough to resist himself starting to do the wrong thing. But the cost for him was constantly his soul was tormented. 
And he was risking everything. As we read on in the story, we'll um, see how this choice will have devastating consequences for Lot and for his family in particular. He may have been a righteous man, but I don't think as we read Genesis, we can conclude that he was a particularly wise man. So I was reflecting on this. How will we be tempted to do this sort of thing, to risk our relationship with God because there's an option before us which is, well, goodness me, on the surface, that's a no-brainer. I've got to choose that. Choosing things which aren't wrong in themselves. It wasn't wrong for Lot to want to live in a lush pasture land, but something which opens the door to all kinds of temptation which may well derail our relationship with God. I was trying to think, what are examples? Perhaps it's the offer of a wonderful, newly refurbished flat with brilliantly new, brand new everything in a, in a fantastic area, but it's miles away from all your support networks. And as far as you can see from the internet, there is just no sign of a Bible-based church that you could realistically get to every week and get stuck into. Or maybe it's the, um, the offer of a, of a school which has just had a fantastic Ofsted report, outstanding, it's got excellent facilities, great results. But this school has a reputation for turning out young people who are arrogant, who look down on everyone else and think that they are God's gift and the world should revolve around them. Now, it might be right to go to an area without a Bible church and to start praying for one and work with a team to try and plant one. It might be right to go to an arrogant school and ask Jesus daily for the grace to live in humility as a testimony in the midst of it. To go with a plan and a prayer and a trust in God and a team supporting you, well, that's missional, that's Christian. But to just choose superficially the option that looks good on the surface, knowing it brings us closer to temptation with no support plan, no real care and thought, is to risk everything like Lot did. Or to choose a life partner just by looks, or just by his charm and sense of humour, rather than by character, by things that will last, by Christian faith, is to court, well, it's to court challenge slash, well, it's to risk everything, isn't it? It's to risk finding yourself in a relationship where there isn't the character to sustain that relationship. We may still, all of us, be choosing to come to church on a Sunday, but what direction are we choosing for the rest of our lives? What choices have I made recently? Have you made recently? And which direction are they going in? To do with family, to do with career, home, lifestyle, relationships, which way are we going? Are we choosing to put our faith in God's promises, to reach up and take hold of his hands, or are we making promises, uh, choices, sorry, are we making choices? that we actually know in our hearts of hearts are risks, risks of taking us away from God. I said earlier that I think Abraham was letting Lot choose about him. Uh, I think that was about Abraham trusting that God would bless him whatever he was doing in the land. And the reason I think that is because of how this little episode ends in the last uh, four verses with the Lord underlining his promises to Abraham. And you see, I can imagine, on, on, in verse 14, as Lot leaves, Abraham having a second thought and thinking, have I done the right thing here? 
I've just let him go off to the very best grazing land, and here I am in the hills. And so God, in verse 14, speaks to Abraham to reassure him, to underline the promises he's already made in chapter 12. He says, look around to the north, the south, the east, the west. It's all for you and your descendants forever. Now go and explore it. Verse 17. And Abraham, even though he and Sarah have no children at this stage of of life, he keeps his hand in God's. He heads off to this place, about 20 20 miles south of Bethlehem, apparently. Uh, Presumably there was some kind of uh, oasis there, which is why it's known for its trees. Uh, And he goes there and, and builds an altar to the Lord to show that he is trusting God's promises to him. Abraham's choice would have felt a lot riskier than Lot's, but God is responding to it and underlining his promises to Abraham and saying, actually, it's the much more secure option to put your faith in God than to just put your faith in what you can see, which is uh, very much informing that song we sang and learnt. Now, it may be that for some of us this morning, the the message, the take-home for this is to hear again God's assurance to us. Actually, this underlining of his promises. Maybe it is that there's a promise that you can think of in Scripture that actually God says something to everyone who trusts in him, and we've got to say, okay, God, yeah, thank you. You you do say that, don't you? Thank you. Because I'm finding following you a challenge. Because following God is a challenge, isn't it? Uh, Often it is. I mean, I'm guessing, I'm not in a in an average workplace, as you know. But I'm guessing in the average workplace that if people start talking about uh, um, what they're doing in in life at the moment and someone mentions they've just started yoga or they've taken up mindfulness, then there'll be a real interest in the room, a real kind of buzz of, oh, tell me more, how are you finding it? And if you mention what you're doing at church at the moment, there'll be a, oh, that's nice for you. There'll be a difference, I'm, I'm guessing, in the average workplace. Unless, of course, God's at work in your workplace, which we pray would be drawing people to himself. Or when we give financially to God's work through the church, we give a percentage of our income. Maybe we stretch ourselves. That's going to impact other things, isn't it? It's going to impact what kind of holiday we choose or other things because we're giving. Or we're trying to live a holy life. We're trying to be patient with the people we live with (laughs) or work with. We're trying to be godly and self-controlled in what we eat or drink or watch, what we say and do. And some weeks we do well, and some weeks we do badly, and we're tempted just to give up trying. Where does the energy to try again come from? Where do we get the reassurance that we're on the right road, even if no one around us thinks we are? What will keep us motivated to give ourselves to God and to his kingdom It's knowing that when God makes a promise, he keeps a promise. It's knowing that when Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. When Jesus says that, that is sure and certain as a basis of everything in life, as a basis of a friendship with him, we are eternally secure. If we put our hand in his hand. We go into the challenges of the week with a humble confidence in him and a freedom to live life for him.